0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with
1: Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas.
2: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian.
1: This week, we're reading Mark 10, 32-52, the last of Jesus' three predictions of his suffering and death that began back in Mark 8. Once again, we see that the disciples have not quite understood— as James and John respond by asking Jesus to sit at his right and left hand when he comes in his glory. We talk about Jesus' invitation to James and John to drink his cup and receive his baptism, indicating that they, and all followers of Jesus, must be willing to share in his suffering, becoming slave and servant of all. We also discuss the story of blind Bartimaeus, who asks for mercy and receives his sight. Unlike the disciples, have been jostling for first place Bartimaeus becomes a model for christians falling in place behind jesus on the way what else could he do and what else should christians do but live his life in gratitude for the mercy jesus showed him thanks for joining us hey amy it's bible worm time
2: it's bible worm time
1: what's going on in your world
2: not a gosh darn thing, Bobby. Wow. I don't know. I don't know what's going on my word. I yeah. feel I feel like sleepy and disconnected from my body. <laughs> That's what's going on. Even though like I have done all the things, I went running. I did some singing. I was like, okay, body, let wake up. Come on. Yeah. We're here. No. No, my body said
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> you need a day like that. You need a day like that sometimes. You can't just be on all the time.
2: What's new in your world? Are your oh. children sick? I feel like every child I know is sick right now. <laughs> Amy, don't say that. You're going to make this... Oh, sorry.
1: You're going to speak something into the universe that I can't unspeak. I'm just
2: kidding. <laughs> Nobody's sick.
1: We are sort of recovered. So we had that snow week, you know, where I was going crazy. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. And
1: then when, uh, my wife's parents came and spent a nice weekend with us. And so things... Things have been sort of not the normal rhythm in one way or another. I mean, really since like November. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> since January of 2020. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Basically like the week before Thanksgiving was like the last normal week at our, at our house. And so we can sort of see it's going to, maybe it's about to settle in. It's settled in a little this week. And so it's just, it's kind of weird to be back in a normal pattern for a while. But mm. here we are.
2: Here we are.
1: So Amy, we have now for several weeks been in this sort of series of texts that began with a text we didn't actually talk about, but we mentioned on the podcast with the double healing of a blind man. Mm -hmm. And then we've had this series of texts in which the disciples seem to be struggling as Jesus tells them about suffering and death and what's about to come. And they seem to be struggling to figure out exactly how to make sense of Jesus or something like that. This text that we're reading today is the is the last kind of segment of that part of Mark. And it mm-hmm. ends with the healing of another blind man, spoiler alert, whose name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And so we're kind of coming to the conclusion of one major section of the gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Is there anything before we read this text that you want to remind us about, call our attention to?
2: Okay, I think in some ways you have already called our attention to the things that feel most salient to me Sorry that, about that that No, 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 no. This that's a good thing. But I will note at least in the the last little chunk, it seems it the text tells us explicitly that they're they're on a journey. Yes. But I'm not totally I, I can't find a place where it has told us where they're going or why. It's mm. just like they're on the move and they are encountering people. And so in this in this text it'll tell us that they're going to jerusalem which feels yeah. very as you're saying like this is the last leg of sort of this part of the text that they're heading to jerusalem seems i don't know that that's a big destination
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> it's a big destination
1: that's really important amy that sort of phrasing of on the way has both that connotation that's now becoming clearer and clearer to us as we draw closer to jerusalem that that's where we're headed And then also that expression on the way also has a suggestion to it about not just like a physical journey, Mm -hmm. but like a a way in which one lives one's life if you are a follower of Jesus. And so to join Jesus on the way is to kind of live in this manner that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to do. And Mm -hmm. I think the on the way or on the road in Mark has kind of both of those senses simultaneously. If you live in this sort of way, it's going to lead you toward Jerusalem and, In some sense.
2: Yeah. Yes. And we use that sort of same term of phrase, uh, that same turn of phrase in the Jewish community too, that we actually sort of do a mix of English and Hebrew and say, like, you're off the derech, like you're off the path, you know, if if you have strayed. Yeah. Yeah. I was teaching my
1: students this morning, we were talking about the halacha, the Jewish law and mm-hmm. I was trying to explain that sense of like really the word means like a walking path or something like that yeah like, yeah do you, do you use that imagery in your community about the about the rules or the structure of Jewish life
2: yeah I mean it's it's weird because law within you know our modern American culture just has such a specific connotation mm-hmm. and like yeah okay they're laws but like it it's really more just like this is the way we do it mm-hmm. like this is. This is what it looks like. (laughs) This is how we enact Judaism in our life. Right. And so I really like that imagery of the the walk or the path. Yeah. As opposed to, there's a list of laws in a high court, which may also be true, but that's not the way you, it's hard to live in any kind of intimate way with that. Right. Yeah. Breathing down
1: your neck. I love that way of describing it. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about the way that Jesus is calling people on here too. It's like, this is the way we do it. Like I'm showing you how it is done. And so I think that's a helpful way of getting there. The last couple of episodes have both ended with Jesus making some statement about many who are last will be first and the first will be last or something like that. Mm -hmm. This has been, we've been sort of playing with that idea in the Ash Wednesday episode and then last week with the Mm -hmm. rich man. And that idea of firstness and lastness and hierarchies and all of those things have been very much in the presence of the conversation while Jesus is talking about suffering and death and all of these things. And so I just want to remind us that the very last words we read last time were many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And then Jesus picks up again here in the text that we have today. Yes, yes. So we're reading Mark 10, 32 to 52, and I'll read the first part of that in the Common English Bible. Jesus and his disciples were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following behind were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he told them what was about to happen to him. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him, and kill him. After three days he will rise up. Mm-hmm. So you alluded already to the fact that we get the specification here they're going up to Jerusalem. We've got that sort of stated for the first time. This the way this is described Jesus is in the lead, disciples are amazed, others are yeah. afraid. Yeah. Can you just talk about how you picture that and why you think like why you think it's like that? Oh
2: god, I find it such a sort of rich and poignant image. I don't know if I'll we'll be able to pull all of it out in words, but if you imagine them, I mean, you can imagine the path, the metaphorical path, as you said, sort of in like, this is the way we do it. And also that there's some maybe sense of how much they understand about what's really happening. So of course, Jesus is in the front and is sort of distinguished from, from everybody else, I think the differentiation between the disciples being amazed and then a group of people behind them being afraid is, Mm -hmm. like they are following, Mm -hmm. they're following, but if you imagine that sort of fear, awe line, (laughs) they're on the fear side of the line and the disciples are on the awe side of the line, which in some ways is a little strange because the disciples are the ones who Jesus keeps telling what's going to happen. Right. But they are, maybe because they have more intimate access to Jesus, they're able to just sort of lean into this sense of awe instead of full-on
1: fear. I like that a lot. Because then you've got sort of like, (laughs) it's like a spectrum, right? Jesus Mm -hmm. is like resolute. Like, I just get this picture of him like striding boldly up the hill, you know? And then you've got the people in the back. I love that image of they're, they're still coming along, but they're afraid. And then mm-hmm. the disciples kind of in the middle, like they've got that sort of ambiguity about like, yeah, we're, we're being resolute. But also <laughs> like they're kind of being afraid too. Like there's, it's kind of makes space for lots of ways of being on the, on the way.
2: Yeah. Are there other things that that you would draw out of that
1: lineup? I don't think so. I, I really sh- like the, I'm really sort of, drawn to your interpretation of the, cause I, I think I was a little judgy about the ones following behind were afraid. Mm. I think I was a little judgy about them, but I really love how thinking about them as yet, like they are, they are exactly described as the ones following along behind. They're not the ones running away. So yeah. I, I like that. It makes space for me <laughs> to, be, to be on this <laughs> <Okay>. journey too.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I guess this is happening.
1: I also feel like there. this is a little bit of a different depiction of Jesus than the way I've thought about Jesus before. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's been, like, moving around a lot and, like, going places. But this is the most sort of removed he has seemed to me as, like, he's kind of set his mind on where he's headed and what he's doing.
2: Yeah.
1: And he's a little less part of the group. It's like, yeah. I got to go do my thing and, like, y'all get on board with me. Yeah. Which just feels a little different to me.
2: It does. And it's, it's an, I mean, Jesus has a really complicated mission here because it is to, you know, to build community and get people to listen and follow and also to do this thing that, that we already saw the disciples will try to prevent from happening. Like it doesn't, the human mind can't wrap itself around it. And so there is a sort of push pull in this. And Yeah. yeah, at this moment, Jesus at least for this verse, seems more focused on, we got to go. Yeah. We got to go.
1: One of the things that's so interesting about that to me is that Jesus, at the end of his life, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times that God could take the cup away from him. Mm -hmm. And so, like, Jesus also, somewhere in him, I don't know if fear is exactly right, but this is not nothing to him. He's not just like, Here we go. He is, he's got some anxiousness too. And yet this sort of depiction of him is sort of, I don't know, he's,
2: he's He's confidently going into
1: it. He's resolute.
2: He is resolute. Mm -hmm. This is, this is happening.
1: I like that. So Jesus pulls the 12 aside and says a version of this thing that he has said to them previously twice in the last couple of chapters. But this is. Pretty detailed. It's the most detailed explanation. Were there things about the way Jesus says it this time that struck you differently?
2: Yeah, there were there were a couple of things that stood out to me, and and it could be that some of them. Were, okay, so I will tell you what stood out to me most mm-hmm. is that Jesus refers to himself in the third person as son of man. Mm -hmm. Although as I say that, I don't know if he also did that in the other ones. I don't remember, but it stood out to me in this telling. This telling just felt to me like, like, see, we're going to Jerusalem. Like we're on our way. Watch. It's happening. It's unfolding already. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And then just such a matter of fact and concrete, way of talking about what's going to happen in a way that sounds to me very much like the way that we talk to children about things like death or sickness Mm -hmm. that might be scary, but Mm -hmm. they're going to happen. And so we do our best to tell them what's going to happen in a way that's not going to completely freak them out. Right. And I think that use of the third person even felt very parental to me in a way Mm -hmm. like, Mommy's going to the hospital and this is yeah. what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and you tell them in terms of the relationship of the person to them. Like yeah. you know, son of son of man, like I am I am human like you are and this is what's going to happen.
1: I really love what you're saying about the humanness of Jesus. I will tell you until I've been reading this text with you this spring. I have usually transposed human one into Daniel seven and said, this is a reference to Jesus's divinity. And you have been consistently reading it as a reference to Jesus humanity. And I I, I like both of those ways of reading it, but here to say I'm human and these things can happen to me just like they can happen to you. And I have Mm -hmm. a body just like you have a body and I'm subject to frailty, just like you are subject to frailty that is really striking me in a a really important way. Like Jesus is, is relating to them differently. This, the specificity here too. I, Mm -hmm. I, I like the way you're talking about that. You know, we were talking about, you know, trying to explain to my two year old at the time or three or whatever she was that, about the cat that died and like yeah. how the language you use and then you use different language the next time you talk about it and then you use different language. And so it's like here Jesus is able to be clearer. Sort of they've they've mm-hmm. had some progress and now he can say here's here's what's really about to happen. I like that. So they've he sort of developed there or given them the time to process yeah. to where they can hear this. Yeah,
2: those. right, right. He's given them the big picture already and now they zoom in a little bit on the part that that is actually the most understandable to humans, like how mm-hmm. this is going to unfold before the moment of death.
1: The other thing that stands out to me here is we get mention of the chief priests and the legal experts,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but we also get an explicit mention of the Gentiles, yeah. which I think is just a reference to Romans. Yeah, And then that they will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him and kill him. Could be, I think, read as a reference to both of those groups together Mm -hmm. or just Mm -hmm. read as a reference to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. But certainly it is saying at the very least that the Gentiles are going to do these things. The Romans are going to do these things to him. That seems important to me, partly just because of Jewish Christian relations and saying like, this is not a Jewish thing. This is a powerful people thing or a human thing. Yeah. Anything else about the inclusion of Gentiles there or Romans there? seem important
2: yes to everything you said and I just feel this moment when it says they hand him over to the Gentiles like there's this there's this way in which you know you wish that your people would mm-hmm. care for you for better or for worse or even or even punish you or do what they need to do but like the handing over of you to people who are outside of your Mm -hmm. proverbial tribe feels mm, I don't know. It feels sad.
1: I think that thinking of the Romans or the empire as ridiculing, spitting, torturing, killing, there's something there that I can't quite, and we'll talk about this more I'm sure when we get to the Good Friday text in a few weeks, but that it's not enough for them just to kill him. Like, yes, they have to ridicule him and make it, you know, and lower his status and make him seem like a joke and make it really hurt. And I don't know, like that's just so painful to me. Mm -hmm. First of all, the human impulse to kill our enemies, but then the human impulse to want to see people suffer.
2: Right. And, and, and th- there's like the sort of human to human level of it, and then there's also like if if y- by mocking him and degrading him, it it like mocks the whole theological system that he's representing. Like right. it mocks the whole worldview and system of beliefs, and you know for for him and also for all of his followers, like it it degrades the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Which is, I guess, the point, right? Which you is want to make an example of him so no point. one else would ever think about doing something like that. Right. So no wonder those followers are afraid. Like they kind of know what's yeah. up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a legitimate fear that they have.
2: It is. Yes. Hi y'all. It's Amy, one of your friendly co-hosts, and I want to tell you why Bible worm is important. There's a Jewish tradition that Torah study is best done with a partner, a hevruta we call it, someone who pushes you beyond where you would have gone on your own. Bobby was essentially my hevruta for 10 years of grad school, and I've never found a thought partner quite like him, so when he asked if I wanted to read texts together, there was no real thought process before I said yes. The decision to record this podcast the way we do was risky. We don't have a script. We don't pre-talk things. We are thinking together, live. And it is my hope that precisely because of that, you feel invited to think along with us. Because everyone needs a time And if you don't have one, I hope you will let us be yours. If this way of being in relationship to biblical text speaks to you the way it speaks to me, I hope you'll help sustain us through Patreon at whatever level makes sense for you. There are some nice perks if you need them. Liturgies, videos, monthly discussion groups. This year I've added some recordings of the chanting of these texts that you might hear in a synagogue. Or you can just support us to show your appreciation and help us know that this work matters. Thanks for listening and for supporting us however you
1: Okay, we're about to see how James and John, sweet men, are going to respond. Is there anything else you want to say about this introduction?
2: No, I don't think so. I just have this little note in my margin at the end of this paragraph. Like, what do you expect to happen next? Like, Jesus just said these things. (laughs) Yeah. How do you think the conversation will unfold? Yeah. And then we'll see how it does.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This is sort of, this is the third time that Jesus has had this conversation with them. And oftentimes, especially in Mark's gospel, we have patterns of three and the third one makes some kind of a move. Yeah. So if you're a listener Mm. or a reader of Mark, you might have certain expectations about what's about to happen. Okay. Picking up in verse 35. James and John, Zebedee's son, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They said, allow one of us to sit on your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory. Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and receive the baptism I receive. But to sit at my right or left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. All right, you were talking a little bit a minute ago about maybe hoping for something from James and John. Maybe the third time is the charm. Can you talk about the request and has anything changed? What do you think about what James and John are up to?
2: When I'm reading it this time around, I really am still feeling drawn into that. This feels like a parent-child conversation And so you tell your kids all this stuff and then they say something that at least at first seems really sort of (laughs) Mm self-interested and like maybe they don't realize the import of what you've said. Yeah. But I want to, and and we certainly can read it that way. We certainly can read it as they want honor. Yeah. And so they want the most highly honored seats. Yeah. Yeah. But as I was reading it this time around, I also had this little tug of a feeling that, like, part of what they're asking is like, can we be close to you? Mm. Like, can can we sit next to you?
1: <laughs> well, that's really lovely.
2: Which is something that a that a kid would ask a parent. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand anything about what you're saying, but can we do it too?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: So I don't know. I don't know which way to read it. I don't know I if it's that. if it's still their power-seeking stuff, or if there's a sense that they—it
1: certainly becomes about power and authority yeah. once the other disciples get involved. Yes, but that's interesting that it's actually not clear exactly why James and John are asking the question that they ask, and, and the others perceive it as a slight. But we don't actually get their motivations. I like the reading it. I'm not sure I'm persuaded that that's the, the main interpretation I'm going to do. I'm not go sure I with. am either. <laughs> but I love that way of just thinking about it and toying with that. Like, we just want to be, we just want to be with you. This idea of on one on your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory mm-hmm. has been understood in some different kinds of ways. One of them is that they they still think Jesus is coming to establish an earthly kingdom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that whatever all this other stuff is about, Jesus is about to establish a kingdom on earth, and they want to be right and left of him, the second and third in power. Mm-hmm. The other way of reading it, or at least another way of reading it, is that there was a Christian story that was told in the early in the first century, it shows up in both Matthew and in Luke that the maybe it's from the what we call the Q source in scholarship, mm-hmm. that the 12 disciples in the kingdom to come are going to sit on 12 thrones and help Jesus judge the dead, righteous or not righteous, at, after the resurrection. Then they're not asking about, can we have earthly power here and a kingdom here? They're asking, can we have a role in the judgment after death yeah. does one of those seem more compelling to you or or if you read it you know one or one or both of those ways does it affect your outcome
2: I mean it seems like if they're talking about an earthly kingdom, they are really not listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like they were singing themselves songs while Jesus yeah. was saying la, all la, that other stuff. I know, like, <laughs> like really not listening. Yeah. But I don't I mean, it's a really good question. That phrase in your glory. Yeah. Is that just like in your in your most uh elevated moment?
1: Right. And when then when you come riding into town on your steed. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I can't be. It cannot be a kingdom on earth. (laughs) It can't be. It can't be. Unless they think think after Jesus rises again that, yeah, I don't, They. I mean, it would really be so non sequitur.
1: Yeah. I think that's probably right. I guess maybe there's a position in the middle, which is Jesus is going to die and be resurrected and then come back and establish an earthly kingdom. Yes. Right. And so then James and John would just, Still be like alive. They're just like wait. They just wait on him to come back and then establish and then, yeah, join him after his resurrection in an earthly kingdom. If you read it as they're sitting on thrones in the coming kingdom, then maybe they also have died and been resurrected. I don't. I don't know for sure.
2: But they want to be his two main guys.
1: They do, or else they want to be close to him, which I'm still kind of compelled by that. Yeah. To me, it makes a little bit of a difference what we were just talking about as to whether, because he he says, you can't drink this cup or receive this baptism. And they say, we can. Yes. Which makes me wonder if they have realized that if Jesus is going to die and be resurrected, that they also are going to die and be resurrected. And so Mm -hmm. then they're asking that question in the next stage of things, can we sit in the position of judgment? So they, if, if you read it that way, then they have made some sort of a move, which is, okay, you are going to die and be resurrected, and we are too. They're still asking the same question about positionality that they've been asking before, but they sort of have, have reconciled with the reality of the suffering and death. I don't know that it's a great move, but it seems like maybe they have
2: mm-hmm.
1: come a step further.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're certainly not fighting what he's saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But they're also not dwelling on it. They're they're like, okay, well, after all that's done, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> once you're back to glory,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they can just, we meet up there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is so funny because Jesus, whenever he talks about his what's about to happen, he spends so much time on the ridicule and the spitting and the torturing and the death, and then he just at the very end, oh yeah, and by the way, I'll rise up. It's such a minor part of his speech that he gives. But it's yeah. the point that they, they seem to only be able to latch on to. Which maybe is true of many of us who are followers of Jesus, that we get so drawn to the possibility of resurrection that we don't really consider the parts that maybe come before that.
2: And I don't know how they would interact with the parts that come before it. I mean, I guess other than to say they want to be go through all of that with him too. Yeah. I mean, they, they tried before to argue Jesus down that they could prevent this somehow and it wasn't going to happen. That was clearly not the right way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jesus uses this language of, can you drink the cup or receive the baptism? Which is a very particular way of asking that question. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about what Jesus is asking them?
2: I mean, I guess it, it feels to me very much like, I don't know, like a way of talking about a, a fate or a destiny that yeah. you are ritually tied into through rituals that are really important to you. Yeah. And so you wouldn't want to say, like, if if that's if that's the cup, you wouldn't want to not drink it. But if it's not your cup and you don't you know, like right. it uh
1: Oh, I like that.
2: It's an interesting thing to tie this difficult fate into ritual acts that someone in this community wouldn't refuse if Mm -hmm. but it is interesting that he doesn't say are you able to take up the cross with me or something which was language that he had used before
1: I like that this cup is a cup given to me and can you really drink from it like I like that Mm -hmm. way of thinking about it so it's a voluntary taking on of the cup that maybe was not like you didn't have to drink from that cup but you have you will have chosen to do it I like that way of thinking I do think from Hebrew scripture and elsewhere that that idea of drinking from a cup is very much tied to accepting one's fate. It's interesting to me because I know I'm talking a lot about things that we haven't read yet, but mm-hmm. uh, that in that same Garden of Gethsemane scene, Jesus says, if it be your will, take this cup from me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he doesn't even want to drink the cup that's, yeah. that's been given to him. Like it is a really difficult cup. And James and John, maybe they don't understand what they're saying, but maybe they are really committing to voluntarily taking on this thing. Hmm. The connection to baptism takes me all the way back to our, one of our first conversations, maybe the first one we had about Mark in that scene where John is baptizing and then Jesus is baptized and then immediately gets forced out into the wilderness. And so there's this, we talked about that as accepting the way of life of the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to try to enact, which is what gets him killed. And so if you, can you accept that baptism? It makes baptism seem a little different than just like, in my tradition, baptism is like, look at that cute baby getting baptized. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And this is not that. This is, you are taking on a way of life that is going to be dangerous for you. Can you you do that?
2: Bobby, the way you're talking about this is making me think of at least some of the the Midrash that surrounds the story of the Israelites receiving the Torah or receiving the Ten Commandments at Sinai, where there's a part where the Hebrew text says, na'aseh v'nishma, we will do and we will hear. Mm. And so the rabbis ask this question of like, how can you do before you hear? Like the verb should be in the other order. Yeah. But there's this sense that at a certain level, you don't really know what you're agreeing to. Right but that doesn't mean you can't agree to it. Like you can, you can agree to it without fully understanding it. And I kind of feel like, not that they have no understanding of what they're talking about here, but I just don't, I don't, I mean, even if you understand intellectually what Jesus is saying, I don't think you can realize what it will actually feel like to walk that path.
1: I think that's right.
2: But I think, I don't know. I think it's interesting to, to imagine they can they can really they can commit to it anyway, even though they don't really know what they're committing
1: yeah. to. Yeah. I love that. So there is a way that the characters in the story would hear that line about cup and baptism. Mm. I think Mark's audience, the church 40 years later, around the year 70, would have heard sacramentality, the two early sacraments of the church. Mm. our baptism and then communion or the eucharist which involves bread and cup and so that's it's eucharistic it's ritual language and so i think in that sense this moves beyond a question that's just simply to james and john can you drink this cup can you mm. accept this baptism mm-hmm. and so that the christian reader of this text would have heard and maybe should now still hear can you drink this cup can you accept this baptism mm. It, ref- it changes the way you think about what you do when you participate in these sacraments. And you know, that communion is something that Christians celebrate regularly. Some, some of us once a week. And so this is like, we, we accept the cup all the time. And yeah. so this is sort of a reframing of, but like, can you really like, what are you doing when you accept it?
2: Yeah. Can I ask you one more question about this part? Yeah. So In the end, Jesus, the answer to their question, can we sit at your right and your left, is I don't actually get to decide that. Mm -hmm. But why does Jesus, like, he doesn't, why does he go through the first, why doesn't he just say, I don't get to decide who's at my right and my left? (laughs) Yeah. Like, he goes through the whole, do you really understand what you're, do you understand what you're asking for? Are you really able to do this? Do you think it's like. Is, does he want them to verbalize their willingness? Does he want them to think about it? Does he want them to remember that they've said it? Is he just irritated because he thinks <laughs> they're not really paying attention? And yeah. wants, you know, like, what do you think's going on?
1: So, first of all, that passive there, it belongs to whom those for whom it has been prepared. Mm. Presumably is a divine passive, which means God gets to decide that. what. And I mean, whatever you do with Jesus as God, I don't know. But that seems to be like, this is this is above my pay scale yeah. to make that sort of decision. But it, you're exactly right. It's so interesting that he doesn't say, I don't get to decide that. Do you still want to do this thing? He says, do you really think you can do this thing? And then once they have said yes, then he says, but I, by the way, I can't give you the reward that you want.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's something important to that about separating the the drinking of the cup and the... Accepting of the baptism that is separate from the question of reward or not. So that I think maybe the question is, can you accept this? Is that's the question. It's not, can you accept this given what the reward may or may not be? Yeah. It seems a little, it's a little bit like what you were saying earlier about accepting something you don't know what it is yet. It's it's accepting something, hoping for one reward, and then finding out after the fact mm. that you can't even get that mm-hmm. reward. It's a little... Mm-hmm. It's a little tricky.
2: No, but it, that's an interesting way to think about it, that like, don't be focused on the outcome here. You've asked me for an outcome. Put that aside. The question is, can you do this next thing?
1: Right. Yeah, that's the right question. No, re- The reward is the wrong way to frame it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So once that has happened, then the other 10 hear about it and they're angry. And so Jesus gives them this, comparison between Gentiles care about authority and rank, but that's not the way you should do it. And then comes back with another version of this first will be last. Whoever wants to be great will be a servant. Whoever wants to be first will be slave. And then Jesus says, because that's what I have done or what the son of man has done. Can you talk a little bit about Jesus's response there and does it add or change or nuance anything we've read about this sort of same idea previously?
2: I mean, I think that, you know, the way you articulated that question really ties it back to what we were just talking about, like the importance of them needing to put aside the outcome. Like, yeah, they asked for an outcome, and the question was, can you can you actually drink? Can you really drink the, from this cup? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, I mean it's a complicated cup they'd be drinking from <laughs> yeah. but but part of it is that you take on this role where your life is entirely about service to others and like serving serving the serving the the human system serving the community the human divine system and then there's you know this like the the paradigmatic example is to be willing to give your life in service of the community so i don't i still i mean i don't know if any of the disciples get it or if James and John get it. But I wonder now if that's, yeah, if if that's precisely why he had to talk to them about the cup and the baptism and not about who gets to sit where.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This version of this is so explicit about the way the Gentiles do things, which is the way that the Romans do things, mm-hmm, the way the mm-hmm. empire does things where it's all about rank and authority and being able to boss other people around, which really is how the Roman Empire worked. <laughs> there was like Caesar was at the top and then there was this whole system of obligation and you knew who could order you around and who you could order around. And there's a lot of sort of jostling about that and knowing your proper place. Jesus says that's not the way it's going to be. So we've this is a sort of most explicit statement that it's a rejection of the mm-hmm. imperial hierarchical mm-hmm. system. That's
2: right. That's right. That's right. Before you have filled that part in for right. us, but the text hasn't laid it out.
1: Right. Here mm-hmm. it's very clear. You've been given one way, do it the other way. The language of if you want to be great be a servant, if you want to be first be a slave is similar to things we've seen before. F- first will be last, last will be first, but it's a little more textured. Be a servant be a slave. Do you have thoughts about that? It's not just being last. It's,
2: it's more about, I mean, it's more your relationship to another person or another cause or something. It's, it's what, what is actually being lifted up here and you are sublimating your individuality in some way Mm -hmm. to be able to put all of your proverbial power behind. Lifting something else up, or mm-hmm. lifting someone else up, which it didn't say before. It just said you should be last.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. I love that. There's a relational aspect here. It is still the you're the you put yourself in the bottom rung of the hierarchy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you serve others. What I love about that image is if if everyone lived that way. Mm -hmm. then you would have a community of people who were all trying to lift each other up. Yeah. And so you, while you were lowering yourself down to serve somebody else, somebody else would also be lifting you back up. And so it it doesn't, if it worked right, it wouldn't result in some people lowering themselves and just staying low. That's right. I do. I mean, I say this every time we read something like this, but I do worry about that. Telling people to be the servant of all when not everybody's actually going right, to do Right, when that.
2: this is not actually, like this is kind of a utopian right. vision. And so what happens when some people are doing this and not others? And what happens when people in certain location, social locations are doing this versus others? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It gets a lot more complicated in the actual carrying out of this vision.
1: Anything else we want to say about this interaction between Jesus and his disciples?
2: Will you talk to me a little bit about the word ransom? I don't know that we've encountered it before. Have we?
1: I don't think we have. This is quite a, 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 I don't know. I was going to say famous, but it's probably not famous. But it's an important line from Mark. And it has to do with Mark's sort of soteriology. Like, in exactly what way does Jesus save people? Mm -hmm. I think it is possible to try to draw too much out of that language. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But the language itself is about freeing people like paying the price it's a paying the price of freedom for a slave i want to tend to read that as a slave to the power of death although that's not exactly said right here paul uses that language in his letters sometimes about death having sort of a power that captures people and jesus's death and resurrection frees us from that power i don't know Mm -hmm. if Mark's trying to go all the way there Mm -hmm. or not though Mm -hmm. Mm Do you have thoughts about ransom or more just curious about how I would make sense of it?
2: I mean, I mostly was curious how you would make sense of it. I kept going back in my mind to sort of the sacrificial model in the Hebrew Bible and whether there is a sense of ransom in that, which I, I would generally say that is not how I understand the sacrificial model to be working. So I don't know if this is intending to, I mean, I, I guess I have in my head already this this metaphor of Jesus as, you know, a s it in light of the sacrificial system. But if I think of it more as sort of like the redemption of captives or the redemption of slaves, that's a that's a that's a different model. And that I think makes a little more sense to me than the sacrificial mm-hmm. one. Me
1: too. Some people do do read this as a instance of sacrificial atonement. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the only way to read it. And it's not the way that I'm compelled to read it, but that probably says as much about me and my sort of theories of atonement as it does about Mark. Yeah. The other thing that's in that same line is he gave his life as a ransom for many people. And so some people have asked, does that mean like, is that in contrast to everyone? Like, well, a lot of people, or Mm -hmm. is that in contrast of a few people or no, you know, and I read that as expansive. So, like, many people means this is not, like, a, a limited offer. It is mm-hmm. bigger than you might imagine. But I think other some other people read it. Well, it's not everybody. It's smaller than that. Interesting. I don't know that it really matters. I mean, it matters. Like, <laughs> how narrow is your view of salvation matters. But <laughs> I don't know that drawing that out of this one word is necessarily yeah, the, way the way we want to go. Yeah, go about it. Yeah, I hear you. Picking up in verse 46. Jesus and his followers came into Jericho. As Jesus was leaving Jericho, together with his disciples and a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Timaeus's son, was sitting beside the road. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Many scolded him, telling him to be quiet, but he shouted even louder, Son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and said, Call him forward. They called the blind man. Be encouraged, get up, he's calling you, they said. Throwing his coat to the side, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Teacher, I want to see. Jesus said, Go, your faith has healed you. And once he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus on the way. Mm. So you were talking earlier about how they're headed to Jerusalem, and we just have sort of really become aware of that. Now we're in Jericho, which is like at the bottom of the hill from Jerusalem. And so we're getting really close. You know, the next city on the journey is going to be Jerusalem.
2: Mm.
1: So this is like the the climax of the journey to Jerusalem, I think.
2: We're like inside the perimeter, we would say in Atlanta. Like the <laughs> yeah. The highway that goes around yeah, the city. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. In the inner loop.
1: So, the way that Bartimaeus addresses Jesus, Jesus, son of David, mm-hmm. and then again he says, son of David. Do you have thoughts about that title as a way of addressing Jesus?
2: So, I had thoughts about it, just reading it on my own, or at least questions. And then I looked at the notes in the Jewish Annotated Study Bible, and that had some more thoughts. So we'll give you the Study Bible thoughts first, which is that some contemporary Jewish healers healed in the name of Solomon, who was literally the son of David.
1: Oh, interesting. So
2: this might be a reference, like this might be like a, in the cultural context, this is how you would have called out for yeah. healing. I, I had not known that before. I had not known
1: that before either. I, I, kind of I read like this that. little
2: footnote. The way I was thinking about it was I just was thinking about, like in the Jewish community at least, there, there are so many names and metaphors for God, and you call upon dis- different aspects of God at different yeah. times. And so, calling son of David, I mean it. It, it feels like a a political sort of mm. <laughs> thing, but but like that the mix of politics and religion. But but I mean, son of David. I don't know. I feel this sort of like deep ancestry and like sense of tradition and like text around son of David, and and what does that mean? But there's no tradition that says. That I know of, I mean, I didn't know about this tradition of Solomon, but that the son of David, I mean, son of David would be Messiah, that the son of David would be healing people. I don't know that tradition.
0: Mm,
1: Yeah.
2: So I guess it was a little surprising. It was a little surprising to me that he would call out to son of David.
1: I think to me too, it's not one of the titles that has really been used of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Yeah. We've had son of God, son of man, Messiah. And so I, I go back and forth about whether Bartimaeus has seen something that it took Peter until chapter 8 to figure out, like, mm-hmm. this is the Messiah.
0: hmm
1: Or whether he's sort of, try, they're trying to say, like, he's kind of got it in the way that Peter kind of got it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He understands Jesus is in some way the Messiah, but he doesn't quite know exactly w- in what way yet. Mm-hmm. If it's that he's already seen what Peter took eight chapters to see, then there's some irony there because he's yeah. because he's blind.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I
1: think I might prefer to read it the other way, which is he's got, he's gotten close. He's at least got an aspect of who Jesus is, but maybe he hasn't quite got it all figured out yet. Yeah, what he's asking for is show me mercy. He says it twice. Yeah. Do you have a sense of, I mean, I don't know how you would know what's in Bartimaeus's head, but like, show me mercy is kind of a general request that, I mean, has a lot of power to it. But do you have a sense of what you think Bartimaeus is hoping for?
2: I think that is such an interesting way to, to articulate his need. I mean, it really, for me has this very clear suggestion, like, either I'm suffering and you are somehow tied up in my suffering Mm. or you have the power to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And so what I want you to do is see my suffering and make it stop. Yeah. It feels different to me than like a lot of other than saying like help me or heal me or like "Have, have mercy to me. I don't know. It it feels like a a very strong recognition of Jesus's power to do something.
1: I love that and I think maybe I mean one way of reading it is that Bartimaeus doesn't quite know what the range of possibility here is, mm. but he knows that Jesus could show him mercy in some mm. way or another. And so he's appealing to that aspect of Jesus, but he doesn't he hasn't pinned it down yet maybe.
2: I love that. That's very interesting because you're right. It could be at something as simple as, I mean, I don't think that he's asking for money, but it could be like, have mercy on me, like see my suffering and do what is in your power to
1: do. Right. Yes.
2: I like that a lot.
1: I like it too. And, you know, I was just thinking sometimes when I pray and I'm in, I have needs, I can be very micro specific <laughs> about exactly what God should do for me. And so in some ways, just, just this prayer of like, show me mercy is a really lovely prayer that says, I don't know exactly what is even possible here, but I know I need mercy. So, so show me that.
2: It's so interesting to contrast that idea with the the line from James and uh, John right when they first start speaking to jesus and say teacher we want you to do whatever we ask of you
1: like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that is such an important contract
2: that's a nice want like <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> do whatever we ask we're not going to tell you what it is i know you can you agree it. to
2: that before we tell you what it is
1: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and bartimaeus gives him this sort of what I, I know you're a merciful one but i do not mm-hmm. know what that entails yeah the people try to they sh- they try to sh- shut him up, you know? Yeah, they say you know. they scolded him, they tell him to be yeah. quiet. Do you have a sense of why, like, what's up with those
2: people? I guess it, it, it again feels like this sense of the way that we treat honored people yeah. with respect in the, you know, human world or whatever does involve like not bothering them. Yeah. You don't, don't, don't bother people. And, you know, he he clearly does not seem to be a man of standing, so right. his needs are not seen as particularly important, and so there's just sort of a sense of like you don't you don't have the right to be bothering this important
1: man. I think that's right, and I I, I kind of have wondered if Bartimaeus were somebody other than who he is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: would they also have scolded somebody of higher status who was also. Calling after Jesus? Like is is it about his brashness or is it about his beggar status? Yeah. Or is it the combination of those? Like we like our we like polite beggars. Right. Not rash ones.
2: And I mean he can't just he can't easily just go up to Jesus and ask for what he wants because he can't get there. He can't see where Jesus is. Like he only knows Jesus is there because someone told him. So he's just he's sitting where he is yelling. Yeah. Because that's what he's got. That's yeah. what the good Lord gave him, and he's using it. Yeah, but it's not orderly.
1: Interpretively, I think that's a really important point in thinking about the ways in which we, I, our society, tries to silence people who raise their voices when that's when that's all they've really got that they can do, and trying to get people to be quiet keep it to yourself or at the very least be orderly in the way that you cry out for mercy yeah there's such a like that sense of like trying to control people mm-hmm. who are in pain
0: mm-hmm.
1: is very familiar to me and mm-hmm. sometimes i experience it
0: mm-hmm.
1: in myself which i really dislike but it but it's in there for sure so i can relate to these folks a little bit yeah
2: yeah and the sense of don't be disruptive
1: but right exactly
2: that's all he's got
1: so Jesus calls him forward. And then I I appreciate that the crowd, like, they, they make a little turn. And they say, hey, guy, be encouraged. Get up. He's calling you. So they, like, mm-hmm. once Jesus seems okay with them, yeah. then they seem yes. okay with them.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're taking their cues.
1: So it always stands out to me when I read this story that Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Yeah. Jesus has not always asked people what they need. Sometimes. He just does the thing. Like we were talking about the garrison demoniac. Yeah. He was so quick doing that. We for, Mark even forgot to tell us that part of the story and had to go back and say, oh yeah, by the way, he had already done this <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. But here there's a pause and a, what do you want? Do you, and to which he says, I want to see. Do you have thoughts about that little that little back and forth?
2: I mean, it's such a powerful question. And like, surely Jesus has a sense of what's like, he can see the man is poor and, I imagine he can tell the man can't see is like on the one hand, I love it because you should always, you know, like we've talked before about healing people from things that maybe they didn't see as a, you know, like who gets to decide what, what's quote unquote broken here. But I wonder, you know, now that you've pointed out that have mercy is a really sort of broad ask to, I mean, almost ask the man for the sake of his own, His own self, his own faith to articulate specifically what is the thing that he wants. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I mostly love that that he asks.
1: I I love that he asks too. And I think what you're saying there about the, the way that we interact with people in need of mercy and being sure we understand what they actually need before we try to do anything. I think that's really important. I also appreciated that you pointed back to James and John, because this is exactly what Jesus said to them. When they say, teacher, do whatever we ask. Mm
2: -hmm. He says
1: in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you?
2: That's true.
1: It's just interesting that Jesus is open to the asking.
2: Yeah.
1: But what Bartimaeus comes up with is, I want to see what the disciples came up with was, Can we sit at your right and left hand? Bartimaeus' question just seems, or his request just seems so much more fundamental or something. Yeah. So so much more reasonable. Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah, it makes the other question really seem pretty silly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it does. Yeah. I also love that Bartimaeus is able to just ask for what he most needs. Yes. You You could have said, well... That might be a big ask to say, let me see. So I'm going to ask for something else. And, but when given the opportunity to name it, he's able to name it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jesus's response is go. Your faith has healed you. Bartimaeus is then able to see, and then he follows Jesus on the way. So that like, go on, man, get out of (laughs) here. Like you got your eyes, your sight back. And then instead of going anywhere, Bartimaeus sort of falls in line. Just that whole thing is interesting to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about Bartimaeus? I now that he's got his sight back, the first thing he wants to do is follow Jesus?
2: Well, I mean, that makes good sense. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: I would think. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by your, your point that maybe when he said, "have me- have mercy on me, it was sort of a uh, like, well, I don't know what you can do here. Like, it's a pretty broad ask because I had always seen him as sort of resolutely confident in Jesus's abilities from the beginning. I had always seen it. Like, I've been reading this for more than, you
0: know,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more than my time on Bible Worm. I just see him throughout as this, like, he he really shoots from the hip and he says what he needs and he goes after it and, it just, I don't, I mean, of course, in my mind, of course he followed Jesus after this. What else was right. he going to do?
1: Right.
2: That's not a very nuanced thing to say. Do you, Can you add some, any nuance? To no, I love thing? that.
1: And, you know, he follows Jesus, not because Jesus told him to. No. Fa- Jesus actually tells him to, like, go live your life. Yeah. And he and sort of says, the, life the only life I can imagine yes. living is to follow you. Yes. Which is so different than the way, you know, that James and John and, Peter and Andrew became Jesus' disciples, and Levi, when Jesus said, follow me, they became followers because Jesus asked them to follow. This guy becomes a follower because Jesus told him he didn't have to be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love that reading. That like, what else, how else could you possibly live your life now that Jesus has given you? Right now now that this has
2: happened. What else could Mm -hmm. feel real to
1: you? Mm -hmm. All right, Amy. So There's a lot you could pull out of this text for sure, but I think we've uncovered some really important things in this whole set of texts. When you're reading these stories about James and John and about Bartimaeus, you're thinking about our world today and communities that we are in. What do you want to draw attention to?
2: You know, we have been talking a lot in, in this text and some texts leading up to it about the different ways that people refer to Jesus in different times and the different mm-hmm. ways that Jesus refers to himself and what we might derive from that. And I love that we've pulled out the parallels between these two different interactions that Jesus has had with the disciples and with this man. And I was struck in the story of Bartimaeus, although I didn't notice it at first in the, in the story with the disciples, that they they start their question with teacher.
1: And mm-hmm. in the case
2: of Bartimaeus I was so interested mm. in the fact that when Jesus says what do you want me to do for you he says my teacher let me see again. Mm. Who asks a teacher to let them see?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think I think though the use of teacher has pressed me in both cases to try to see these events not like including the healing as like the the purpose of doing this is for your, for your learning and growth. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, maybe part of that part of the asking questions that you don't really need to ask or where it seems like Jesus probably already knows the answer is a little bit of a Socratic, like, see if you can get one step further. Yeah. See if you can claim that thought for yourself because You are going to have to, you're going to have to do that. Like this Mm. is, this is the road that we're on. And Jesus really responds pretty differently to the disciples throughout as opposed to the folks who need healing. You know, like Jesus, you really, you can't pin him down as like, this is how he's going to respond to every situation. And I think sometimes it's, it seems curious to me, but sometimes it really seems, no, that is, that's what they need. That's yeah. what these people need to hear to take the next step from where they are right now. Yeah. So now I just need to figure out, you know, what is the, what learning there is for me. I mean, again, as a Jew reading this, so it's a little awkward, but right.
0: like, what, <laughs> Yeah.
2: you know, like what learning is there for me and where would I see myself in these different stories? Yeah.
1: I love that way of reading the, point here as being more than simply about a healing, but about a teaching of some kind. I think that's so important. And, you know, when you read this text and you go back to Mark eight, where there was that double healing of the blind man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we talked about how maybe that's metaphor for the disciples who Mm -hmm. then immediately have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, but then they've been struggling for three chapters to understand what Messiah means. And they yes. keep asking about, can you give me this? Can we do this? Can I be the greatest? Can, you, can I sit next to you? And they just, they have not seen it clearly yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then here we have Bartimaeus, who at the end of this text sees. And I think it draws an interesting contrast that we've sort of been teasing out a little bit between Bartimaeus and the disciples, especially James and John early in this text and what they are able to see and not see and what they ask for and don't ask for. The disciples get caught up in this. We want to make sure that we're going to be right and left of you when you come in your kingdom, whatever that means. They're still thinking in terms of the hierarchy and they want to be near the top of the hierarchy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Bartimaeus is lead is, I'm in need of mercy, which is such a different starting point to say, you know, I'm suffering. I can't do this on my own. I, I need whatever you can offer me. Show me mercy. And then as soon as he sees, he falls in line behind Jesus which I think reminds me anyway of Peter getting all up in Jesus's face way back Mm -hmm. in chapter eight and saying, Mm -hmm. you are not going to suffer. And Jesus has to say, get behind me. And Bartimaeus just knows like he's been a disciple for two minutes and Mm -hmm. he's already like, whoop, I'm going to fall in line behind you. Which reminds me then of that. I think it was the Ash Wednesday episode where we were talking about maybe first and last is not just a reference of hierarchies, but a reference of temple temporal arrival mm. and Bartimaeus in some sense has arrived as a follower of Jesus in a way that Peter and James and John mm. have not quite been able to do yet yeah. because they keep jostling for the front position
2: yeah
1: in which case then Bartimaeus is sort of an example about what it means to be a follower which is to recognize your need for mercy yeah. and to respond in gratitude by falling in line and following Jesus wherever he's gonna go. And he's getting ready to go up the hill into Jerusalem and it's gonna be bad. Yeah. And Bartimaeus is just ready to go. And so there's something there for me about recognizing where I need mercy. And if I wanna be a disciple of Jesus, that's a better place to come from is a place of recognizing my, my need yeah. than a place of trying to defend my status or my honor. I think that's mm-hmm. where I land.
2: I love that. I love that. I love that way that inverts the first and the last temporally. I like that mm-hmm. angle on it a lot.
1: Well, Amy, next time we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, which is Jesus's parable of the tenants and a question about whether one should pay taxes, which seems appropriate this time of year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we cannot give legal tax advice. Just
1: We noted, can't. Noted. No, but we can talk about what Jesus thought about taxes.
2: That sounds good, Bobby. I've enjoyed this conversation.
1: Me too. I'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash podcast for details
2: worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby and our theme music is the world at Large by Dano songs. Many thanks to all of our patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible.
1: Join us next time when we'll be reading mark 12 1-17 Jesus's parable of the Tenants. until then keep on digging.